Welcome to the Anti-Apathy Aunt podcast. I'm Deborah Doan and I'm the Anti-Apathy Aunt, the agony aunt for people who want to change the world but don't know where to start. In each episode, we tackle a social issue that someone's concerned about and speak to the people and organizations in civil society who are trying to do something about it. My message? You don't have to join a political party or chain yourself to a fence. There are many ways you can beat the apathy blues, starting here. I'm here today with my producer, Danny Jacobs. Good morning, Danny. Good morning. Are you ready to fight apathy? I think so. Excellent. So today we're responding to an email from Katie, who now lives in Norfolk. She used to live nearby and she responded to my call for entries. And she writes, I recently moved from London to the countryside. And part of the motivation for this was keeping my teenage children safe from what I see as rising violence that young people are exposed to. But I know this was naive, let alone apathetic. We can't escape this, there's violence everywhere. This is a societal issue that we're all responsible for. But I don't really see what our government's doing about it. And other than running away to safety, it's hard to see what we can actually do to make things better. That's our topic for today, Danny. Youth violence. It is a tricky issue. I think in general, we're ambivalent about the way we view young people and violence because sometimes we see them as the victims and sometimes we see them as protagonists. So this will be an interesting one to look at. This is a really difficult subject. And like you, it's one that I, I wouldn't say I'm ambivalent about it, but I don't know very much about it. I do know that I live in London. It's something that I'm aware of. My son was mugged twice and I know it really shook him and it shook his friends. Um, We didn't want to wrap him up in cotton wool and tell him he can't go out, but it did really make us question, do we want to be here? I think it's a difficult thing for any parent. There's a moment when their kids start traveling to school on their own, when they feel like they can no longer protect them. But at the same time, parents want their children to become more independent. It's really tough. And I think we'll hear a bit about that. Um, I did look up a few facts and figures. Last year in the UK, uh, there were 4,400 knife and offensive weapon offences committed by children. Um, There are actually 780 kids in custody for committing violent offences. And those numbers, you know, on a macro scale, they don't sound like a lot, but they are concentrated in certain areas and it clearly does affect a lot of young people. We also hear a lot about county lines where young people are groomed, they're exploited to move drugs between different counties basically. As And the drug dealers use this as a way of distancing themselves from the crime. So you're right, children are both the victims, but they also become criminalized and then enter into the criminal justice system. And quite a high percentage of children, almost 40%, once you've been criminalized, go on to reoffend. So it's a really complicated issue. And I'm glad we've decided to jump in, even though I'm also a little bit trepidatious. Okay, who are we speaking to first? So today we've got a couple of people and the first speaker is Bushra Ahmed. She is an incredibly inspiring woman. I met Bushra, we're both uh, new trustees to something called the Sheila McKechnie Foundation, which helps people tackle social change and use their voice to do so. 
Bushra is a businesswoman, she's a fundraiser, she's a strategist. She's best known for establishing West Croydon Voice after her family business was burned down by rioters in the 2011 riots. It sounds like she's heavily engaged in many things, but it wasn't always like that. And I'm going to let you tell your own story, Bushra, because you can say it so much better than I can. Thank you, Deborah. Yes, things definitely changed for me in 2011 in the Croydon riots. My shop was burnt down on August the 8th and I was watching it happen from where I lived because I lived on that same road. And that one single event changed the course of my life. It was a very shocking and terrifying night. We saw lots of young people coming out. We saw them setting fire to buildings in the place that they lived. And once the shock and horror had died down, obviously the questions we needed to ask ourselves was, how had we let our young people down for them to get to this point? Um, there's, the, there's an African proverb that kind of came to mind to me at the time, which was the youth will burn down the village to feel its warmth. And I felt that we had really let our young people down. A lot of people would just, you know, run away from London. What made you lean into it? And what, how did you lean into it? What did you do? I'd lived in Croydon all my life. So most of my family had moved out. And when this happened, my family said, why are you still there? Why, why don't you leave? But the point is that if we all leave, what's the hope left for the, for the community that's left behind who can't leave, who can't afford to leave? And I felt a responsibility. I felt it was a place that I loved. I'd grown up in, I went to school in, I'd run a business in. And I just wanted to be part of the recovery for the area um, and see how we could build back better. Well, how did you go about organizing? What was the conversation afterwards with young people in Croydon? One of the things was I'd already had some experience, but it was very internal in my faith community. And then when this happened, I had to kind of go outside of my community into a different world. And it was a different world for somebody like me. There's not many people who are covered Muslim women who will be that vocal, I suppose, or be at the forefront of these things. And the reason I wanted to get involved and, and the conversations that were happening were, you know, young people are all feral, you know, they need to be locked up. But I felt there was a different angle to it. And I felt we needed to explore that. What had we done to let these young people down? Um, one of the things that kind of started the, the whole ball rolling for me was a film called Riot From Wrong, which was made by some young people in Hackney around the time of Mark Duggan's death. And I thought that was a really positive film. So I organised a screening of that and had that discussion around what we can do as, as adults to empower young people to be more active in society, to understand that they can play a role in politics, they can make a difference. And also, I was then working on the Stop and Search Board and looking at data and realising that actually there was a lot that needed to be fixed. I got involved with lots of groups. I then got involved with a couple of charities. I was also a governor at a local school that had started. And all of those things put me very much in the middle of young people's issues, if you like. How do you think it's impacted on young people in the community? Well, one of the things that happened after the riots in our particular area, and that's where I can speak from, is that we had um, a million pounds of lottery money that came into the area because it was one of the most deprived areas in London. And uh, that was called the Big Local. So we had to set up a steering group that was led by residents 
to find out what the need was in the area. Very much it came out that the community wanted to build a, a community that was as connected as it would be in a village, say. So the village theme very much came out as something that could bind people together of different cultures of you know across across the whole of Croydon. The big local has grown to such an extent now that we have our own hub. And one of the beautiful things that's come out of all of this is that we now have a very young chair and lots of young people who are involved in volunteering and delivering stuff to their own peers, to their young people around youth violence, around sports, around disability kind of action, and they're leading on it. So I think that although we've had some really hard times and hard times are coming, the hope is our young people, the young people are, have, are very talented in Croydon. You know, there's a huge amount of goodwill. We have a really great young mayor, real role models and inspiring people. So one of the programmes that I'm very keen on is asset-based community development, where you look at a community and you look at what's strong, not what's wrong. And I think young people are a strength. They are a talent. Um, and I think we need to nurture that and allow young people to have their say rather than talking on their behalf. I think that's brilliant. You, you, what you can't see is me grinning from ear to ear right now. But what do you think you've learned? What's the key lesson or two that you've learned engaging in trying to combat youth violence o over these years? One of the things I realised is that there are so many groups out there who are doing this work on the ground already. So many young people who are already working around the area of youth violence, mentoring, coaching, footballing, boxing, doing all sorts of things. And yet they are very much overlooked in terms of funding. And I feel that instead of trying to build new initiatives, what we need to do is to look at what's already going on, look at what's strong in the community and build on that. My, my learning has been personally that you can achieve anything you want to, you just have to be very persistent about it. My background being the daughter of immigrants who'd come to this country with nothing and seeing that the way that they had survived I realised that actually there's a grit in communities that is stronger and gets you through. And I think that's actually what gave me the strength, as well as my faith, of course, um, to keep going and to realise that I could open the doors that people were telling me that I shouldn't really be going through. And I know there's lots of people in my own community who look at me and say, well, if she can do it, then maybe we can too. What would you say to someone who said, I'm concerned about youth violence, I want to get involved, but what can I do? I think if people want to get involved, there are so many good organisations in every area who are doing really good work. For example, this network of big locals, there's 150 across the country. You know, potentially you could be putting on uh, clubs for the children during school holidays. You could be arranging outings for them. Some children have never been to the sea. They've never been to the beach. They've never seen green spaces. There are loads of organizations who need volunteers to help with what they are trying to do to help young children, but also families. Families also need support. So things like Homestart UK, which actually focuses on the family. Age UK, for example, they look for volunteers. And a lot of the stuff they do is cross-generational. So there's a lot of older people out there who have you know, stuff to offer, um, wisdom, and a lot of young people who need that wisdom. So 
those are the kind of things that parents and grandparents can be doing. There's loads of good stuff going on in your local communities anyway. Just go and find it. So if you could offer one piece of advice to Katie about an action she could take to tackle the wider issue of youth violence, what would it be? I would suggest to Katie that she builds a network of parents in the area that she lives and has conversations about the issues that young people face and make make sure that it's cross-cultural so loads of people are involved. I, I think that's probably the best piece of advice that I would give her. Thank you so much, Busha. That's terrific. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. The next person I wanted to speak to is Junior Smart, who founded the SOS Project. SOS Project works with young people who are at risk of being exploited through gangs and serious violence. Tell me a bit about how you got started. How did you go about it? SOS is a complete ex-offender-led project. We use people with lived experience of criminal justice system to provide support to um, other people that are perhaps being tempted or groomed or being drawn in to co-offending group behaviour such as gangs, um, county lines or other forms of exploitation and um, under the service um, people get one-to-one support um, that's consistent um, and and really helps to um, help them break that negative cycle but get them into education, training and employment. I started up SOS um, the day after my release from custody in 2006. I was engaging with young people both inside custody. I was given, I was fortunate enough to be given access to go back into prisons um, by the prison governors, but also I was engaging with young people on the streets. And um, yeah, it was absolutely amazing. You think from what people say about prisoners and about gang members is that they're lazy and they're lags and they they want to be in custody and equally you think around gang members that actually you know once they're in they they don't ever want to get out well when I was talking to young people the the opposite was true like when I went into the prison I think it was like a 98 percent take up like most people were saying yeah they wanted the service and equally those that were involved in gangs that wanted to get out they want they they were ready to take the help like nobody wanted to stay where they were that was like 15 years ago we work with thousands and thousands of young people each and every year um, and we've just been really really fortunate and really really successful now junior you came to this from your own experience of violence as a young person living in and around south london tell me more about how you experienced it how has it shaped your life how did it shape my life i think you get desensitized to it you know it's just kind of like every day like a everyday thing one of the things you you do is you look at ways that you can protect yourself and that might mean affiliating with a group for protection or it might even mean that you connect with other people that are equally as shocked and as horrified as what you you're seeing I wouldn't even say I was molded by the dark as as much as I'd say I was shaped by it. You kind of have a relationship with it, which is just like, well, you know, I definitely don't want to be the victim. So if that means I'm on the other side, that's exactly what it means. How old were you? I was in my 20s. 
You're in your 20s. It's kind of like, I wouldn't have called it a gang. They were like a group of friends. But after my mum passed away, like those friends positioned themselves as family. And of course, there were no such thing as that. So I'd be working, but what was a side hustle became kind of like a secondary lifestyle choice. And I got involved in uh, criminality from there. I find it really interesting. And I know from quite a bit that you've read is you, you see that as a lifestyle choice rather than the society that we live in as part of it. Do you really think it's down to individual choice and lifestyle? The people we're working with, they're coming from multiple complex backgrounds. Like, they've got multiple issues going on, death, bereavement, trauma. For some of these young people, home isn't a safe place. They, we're talking about young young people that have been groomed. Um, I know that because I've seen it happen and I've been involved in that process. So the process targets the weak, the vulnerable, the isolated, the marginalised. But the reason why I say it's a lifestyle choice is because... I don't want to take away the agency from a young person. And the reality is, in the same way that things can be learned, they can be unlearned. Change, in my experience, I've worked in civil society for better part of 25 years, definitely comes from those who know what they're talking about, right? They've been there, they've done that, they've got the T-shirt. But most people certainly haven't had the experience of being in prison, I've never been in a gang. People don't want to feel impotent. Um, for people who are relatively cut off from that kind of lived experience, what can they do as a community? What can we do to change the status quo? You know, what you're talking about there is really important and really pertinent. Last week, somebody told me that my ideas were too ambitious, too radical and um, it was very, it's too daunting. I was like, this is the reason why youth violence isn't being addressed. But the reality is, you know, every single person has got their part to play. What we need to do is have people step up and simply say, like, actually, we want a kind of like a rich, all-inclusive, vibrant community where where any form of of disrespect for antisocial behaviour will not be tolerated and that's kind of like the first step so I'd say to anyone listening to this use what you have um, in the most amount of ways you can so you know find projects like St Giles Trust SOS and there are others um, and be their mouthpiece like actually in like the biggest thing that people can give us on the project isn't actually funds, it's actually access to their networks. If an issue is happening in your son or daughter's school, follow it up and get, get the community behind you and also invite in projects that are doing really good work. So we've got SOS Plus, which goes into schools, colleges, community centres, really aims to demystify the reality of gangs and, and all of that stuff. What you want is a cultural shift. You want every child understanding how these groups operate and, and what are the traps and how you can fall foul of that. Use your voice, mobilise that community, connect with your neighbours, um, connect with your child's friends, um, connect with the parents of those children. I've read a lot, most of us have read a lot about county lines. It's really that grooming issue around county lines is, is very much in the headlines. How do you work to tackle such a complicated issue? This is the whole thing. It's a very, very complicated issue. Unfortunately, the governments that 
that have been voted in consistently have taken money away from key services. Mental health being one of the primary ones. There's now like six month waiting lists. What you have with with this is a misconception that actually the solutions will be easy. So the key to it actually is consistency. One of the common arguments say is that these young people lack positive role models. We have to ask ourselves why that's actually happening. You mentioned that, you know, there's six month waiting list now for mental health services, that we know that benefits are being cut. So people are uh, more and more households are going into poverty. But on the specific issue of youth violence, are there any glimmers of hope? There's a lot of talk about addressing youth violence, but I'm not actually seeing a lot of action. Like the, the quick, the common sense, quick, quick wins that could be implemented quite quickly, like people aren't doing it. I'm hopeful about the future, but I'm mindful that, you know, what I want to do is actually bring about some lasting change. And I'm, 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 the thing that worries me the most is that people are still in this for a career. They're still in it for their egos and they're not in it for actually what the young people need. And I'll give you a really good example. I'll go into a room where like, we'll be there discussing, you know, violence which affects minoritised groups disproportionately, but I'll be the only person of colour in the room. And they're looking to me for the answers, but I think the problem kind of lies bare when you look at it, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, so you're in a position of having to answer on behalf of all young people, all people of colour, uh, and all people who've been to prison. Like, you're the one person, right? It, you're the it, only... what, should be, what should be happening is the young people should be there. SOS, as a charity, we're doing what organisations should be doing. They should be relating to the young people. They should be putting in the time and the resources to engage with that young person and their family. But structurally, they can't. The frameworks are wrong. The frameworks are not fit for purpose. And that's what we've got to change. The anti-apathy art is all about not waiting on government to change things. Although some of, you know, the ideas, I work a lot on lobbying government and trying to change laws. But what I want to do is really inspire people to do things. What would you say to Katie about what she can do to address the issue of youth violence. I would implore Katie to really get involved on a grassroots level. That doesn't mean necessarily financial, that might mean access to the networks, but as something that you can do on an immediate thing, I'd say connect with your neighbours, connect with your community, and you don't have to be living in an area where violence is taking place to want to or feel like you can do something about it. There's loads of agencies and organisations out there that would really value, your, lend your time, lend your energy, lend your resources, and also educate yourself. Have a look and see for yourself, like because there's a lot of misinformation out there. Thank you so much for your insights. I can think of lots of ways that Katie can get involved. You've given us a lot to think about. And thank you for giving me such insight into your work and your life and your deeply personal approach to trying to, to change the world. Thank you, Junior. Awesome. 
So we're going to call Katie and we're going to get her reaction. Welcome, Katie. Hello. Hi. How are you today? Yeah, I'm really good. Thank you. Really good. Excited to be talking about this. Thank you so much for writing into us. So was there an event in your life or something that gave this particular issue significance to you? I think there were two events. One was when... Uh, the riots were taking place and my daughter was away from me in Peckham and I was pregnant and I needed to drive to go get my daughter who was two and I put a knife in my car to do that drive. I really felt that need to have something to protect myself and it made me realise that if you live like that every day feeling that you need to protect yourself how damaging that is to so much of your emotional health, let alone your your actual lived experience. And it was only later speaking to a police officer, I found out that I could have been arrested for carrying a dangerous weapon. And that just made me really understand how complex this issue is, how everybody, every part of society has a take on what's right and they don't all agree. And then I moved out of London, I brought my kids. So, you know, perhaps naively I felt some of the problems would be left behind. But actually, of course, I've learned very quickly that that's that's not the case. In listening to both Bushra and Junior, what were some of your initial thoughts and reflections about things, you know, their experience and, and things that you might be doing? I think it was so helpful to me, actually, to hear two sides. They both want the same outcome of engagement and empowerment and, you know, the release from trauma and getting people involved in the conversation. But it was really interesting to hear both sides of the experience those who have been, you know, Bushra having had her shot burned down, and that in itself is traumatic in those moments, but what an amazing thing she has done with that experience and how positive that has been, not just to her life, but to everybody else's. But I think I was more emotionally touched by Junior's account and what Junior is doing, because that journey from where Junior was the death of a parent, the gang providing that family that was so needed. You know, where is the community? Where's the community in a positive way providing that that family? Why isn't that happening? So to be honest, it really made me think a lot. And I became quite daunted, I won't lie, about gosh, how big this is. And you know, what can little old me do? But they really clearly gave me ideas as to what I could do. I've certainly come away feeling more passionate about doing little things. It doesn't have to be massive. It's just getting stuck in. Uh, and I think that was something I, I perhaps made excuses not to do in the past, you know, because I'm not the right person. I don't have the right network. I, I, I certainly don't have the lived experience. But at the same time, you know, I'm studying to be a psychotherapist. I have a great interest in families and family dynamics and tr family trauma. And so I'll be working with these people, um, but I don't just want to do that. I want to be helping in a bigger sense. So, yeah, I found it incredibly interesting and 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 really empowering, actually. What were your takeaways? What's one step that you think you might take? Because I, I agree the issue is really daunting and it's linked to race and poverty and so many other things, our education system. But what were your takeaways? Tell us. 
I think the thing that I felt most um, passionate about was was about providing those with lived experience the platform that they need. And the other one was just about giving myself, getting into conversations, not finding the right conversation. It's easy for me to say, well, I don't need to, you know, I don't need to talk to these people about it. And actually, I need to talk to everybody. So I think I really came away with a sense of just do something, educate myself, give my time, give my resources, give the platform to the people who who can most passionately um, um, use it. That's terrific, Katie. Now I'm inspired listening to you. I might go in and do, <laughs> do something about this issue. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining the Anti-Apathy Aunt. It's been amazing. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, Danny, what did you think? So it's obviously a complicated issue with a lot of interconnected problems. But listening to both Bushra and Junior shows me that anyone can get involved and people shouldn't feel excluded because they don't have the right lived experience. I love that they both talked about getting into the community. You know, decades ago, we would have had associations where diverse people mix. Um, they mix with others in their communities. And actually, this has disappeared over the last couple of decades, especially as we've gone online. And those associations, you know, your community associations, your parent teacher associations, those were the places where we build, you know, that community social capital to overcome differences and exclusion. And I love how Katie was inspired to go out and talk to people, including the people she wouldn't normally talk to. So she's almost recreating the conditions of those associations that are missing from today. And maybe the other thing that's missing is a connection between young people as a community and the older generation, not just their parents. It's quite easy for those groups to exist in their own separate worlds, even though we're in the same public space. Gosh, that's so true, especially in the in the online space, isn't it? They're in complete silos. I think another thing that really struck me, um, especially that Junior raised, is the mental health issue. We don't have mental health services very much anymore. The UK Children's Commissioner found gang-associated children were 77% more likely to have an identified mental health need. 77% more than other kids who are in care or assessed for children's services. So getting involved in supporting mental health organizations seems like a really important point. For me, I guess the final point, as you just said, that however daunting an issue and one that is intertwined between those really complicated issues of poverty, ethnicity, education, there is still something that you can do. Thank you, Danny, and to Katie, and especially to Bushra and Junior, who inspired us today. I hope anyone who's listening, whether you have children or not, you know, you could be a young person, you could be an old person. I hope there's something in here that inspires you to take some action. You can find links to the work of Bushra and Junior on our website, antiapathyaunt.com, or join in the discussion on Twitter at antiapathyaunt. What do you think you might personally do to tackle youth violence? And if you have an issue that you want to change and need some inspiration, get in touch via Twitter or go to our website. You can subscribe to future episodes wherever you get your podcasts from. This has been an Anti-Apathy Aunt production. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.